0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotak, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Guyana First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today we present an interview of Fredwa with Smaro Camborelli. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. This interview was recorded during a tea house symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly black, indigenous, and people of color. To sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they have experienced, and the practice and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Smaro Camborelli is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. She is the inaugural Avi Bennett chair in Canadian literature and the founder and general editor of the Trans Canada series of books. Smaro is a specialist in the contemporary Canadian literature and criticism. Her book Scandalous Buddies won the Gabrielle Roy Prize for Canadian criticism. Fridemois began publishing poetry in the 1960s as part of an international avant garde movement located in Vancouver. He has received major literary awards such as the Governor General's and Alberta Stevenson Awards. Fred emerged as a central figure in race writing in Canada and abroad. His collection of critical essays, faking it, further elaborates his long-standing interest in mixed-genre texts and racialized politics. In this interview, Fred begins the conversation with Smaro by talking about his retirement and what it means to deinstitutionalize your sense of self. In the second half of the interview, Smaro and Fred discuss the emergence of racial discourse, language, and vocabulary in the early 80s, and how this emergence shifted Fred's sense of his racialized identity. Fred presents his views about collaboration with different writers in the age of technology, candidate as a discipline, and how writing practices shift when the body ages. We really hope you enjoy this podcast.
2: Good morning. This is uh, Zmaro Camburelli from the University of Toronto in conversation with Fred Waugh. I'd like to start actually with what we were just talking about before we came into the uh, sound room, studio room, when you were saying that you've been uh, retired now for, what, 15 years? Something like that, so, And it's taking you almost as long to de-institutionalize your sense of self or things. Can you talk a little bit about
3: that. Yeah, I think it's it's not that complicated. It's just so because I was institutionalized, if you like, or in, involved in university and colleges for most of my life, after retirement I was, I, there's certain frames, certain ways of perceiving the world, certain ways of reading texts and responding to ideas that I hadn't realized had been so conditioned by not just the discourse around the institution, but expectations, I think, of where where things might lead, one of the results of this is realizing that the institution has been framing my, my presence to well, for example, other writers or working with the community of writers that I live in, in, live with in Vancouver. An example would be I was having a conversation with a good young writer who had, the other day who's had a few books out, and, and uh, she was asking me about a certain certain notions of you know the whole idea of meaning, and uh, I mentioned uh, Steve McCaffrey's you know good old text uh, non-referential mm-hmm. about the non-referential, and well she said what's that and who's Steve McCaffrey and mm-hmm. you know then I talked about B you P know, who oh you know, who's that. What's translating, translating the poem? So the fact that the community that I'm involved with wasn't sort of under... I kind of assumed (laughs) that we all shared the same fabric of, Mm -hmm. of literary... Reference, and, and we don't. But that may also be a matter of uh, generational
2: differences, because I find the same thing with my my students very smart, well informed, educated kids, and they've never heard of the double hook, for example, or they've never heard of Eli Mandel, or some of your early work. That is a, a factor of how institutional uh, education works, right, in terms of the loops they have to go through and how much you have to live out in order to get them what the institution determines to be the tradition or the canon that matters right but i know what you mean yeah so well
3: yeah i understand that it's that yes. it's generational and i can't you know i'm not, not criticizing the person mm-hmm. for oh, i understand you know, kind of not knowing that yes. but i just realized that my frame mm-hmm. the way i i just kind of assumed that we were all part of the same cloth, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that we're not is now is kind of fascinating to me, and so I feel I feel like I have to sort of rejig my my sense of of, of, co- of the context, the literary context that I come out of. Well, you've always been
2: involved in, in teaching. I remember I think when I first met you, you were at DITAC, David Thompson University, University, University. Center. and I remember the the province's attempts to close it down and all that in those days. But at the same time that you were involved with colleges and universities, you also had you were also involved with various other communities. And so could you talk a bit about that? Because yes, these were institutions the way we understand the university or college system, but you also created institutions in the the good sense of that, like the Tish, for example, Mm. or or the Kootenai School of Writing. They're institutions that speak back to the, the more mainstream way of doing things. So can you talk a bit about your engagement
3: with different communities of writing. Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not I'm not putting down the institution. No, I know. i I'm, I'm, yes. I'm you know, I've got I have a lot of gratitude for mm-hmm. the the ability for institutions to provide context and uh, working conditions and, mm-hmm. and environments and communities.
2: Yeah, to talk about the uh, your involvement with with other important things like the Kootenai School of Writing, for example, or Writing Magazine, or Tish. Uh, one of the I think kind of um, subtext of these conversations we're having is to get a sense of what an author, a poet like you, considers to be important in his trajectory, and talk about various cultural events or moments that have shaped your thinking or your writing. So this
3: is just an invitation to you to to think mm, about those okay. things. Yeah, I mean for me, pretty you know, early on it's a fairly literary reference, not a, not a not necessarily a reference to proactive social concerns, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the big event for me when I was young was the 1963, what's called the Vancouver Poetry Conference, and my grounding in poetry comes from kind of the new American poetry of 1960 and, and the Black Mountain po- Poetics and so forth. You know, working at, working with a bunch of, a small group of, you know, four or five other young writers at UBC in the early 60s, people who I were new to me, but who were, we all had the same, we had a common interest in, in the new poetics, the new poetry. And that was really very exciting. And we sort of moved into this new American poetry and, and the, the poetry of the early 60s at UBC with that conference. So we, you know, we met uh, Robert Creeley, Charles Olson, Duncan, mm-hmm. Margaret Aveson, Denise Levertov, et cetera. We met all these people. And of course, one of the great things about, we realized that, I think we all realized this from publishing magazine publishing tish magazine we printed i think 200 copies of it and we got uh, diane de Prima's and leroy jones uh, mailing list from the floating bear they, they gave it to us so we used that as a way because we didn't know where to, quite where to send it mm-hmm. so we sent out free we stole the stamps from the ubc english department and sent it out <laughs> um, it was two cents a piece and sent it out all over, pretty much all over North America, but some went to Britain and, and all of a sudden there was this community of writers out there mm. that I had not, I hadn't realized you know, that the, and these were, so we would be getting poems from Larry Aigner you know, and Ainda Prima and and, uh, and many Canadian writers Victor Coleman mm-hmm. so we would have this, the tentacles sort of went out and I realized that one of the great things about uh, this activity of making poetry and publishing poetry is the community that i got engaged with and uh, so that's public publishing the publishing of a small magazine in the 60s was really the handle that i grabbed onto for for a lot of writing so it led to other little magazines and and then as a central thing to coach house press and the. In the '60s, much, you know, started by Victor Coleman and Stan Bevington, but it created Coach House Press, created this mm-hmm. environment for Canadian poetry, at least that hadn't been around, hadn't been there. It was the new, it was the new Canadian poetry, mm-hmm. and uh, what Raymond Souster called it, New Wave Canada. And so that whole the '60s uh, small press. Magazine thing that was that was really important, and there were hundreds, if not thousands, of small magazines, and we were all inter- exchanging these. So in the mail every day, you'd find you know these little magazines with some you know, mimeographed poem by someone, and oh, that's interesting. And of course, you know, if you think of today with
2: uh, social media and digital access—that kind of uh, vibe or hype about creating your own little magazine, you know, mimeographing it and circulating—it's it's
3: very different, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it does feel it does yes. feel quite different. And, yeah, and that whole notion of sharing—you mm-hmm. know—that I would, you know, someone could read a poem I'd written and then write to me from, you know, Tucson, Arizona, yes. and say, oh. That was really uh, mm-hmm. pretty new. Uh,
2: and of course, when
3: was it that you
2: went to the university in Buffalo? That was in the late 60s? No, that was 70? in the
3: mid-60s. 60s, yeah. I went after uh, I left Vancouver in 63 and went to Albuquerque with mm-hmm. Robert Creeley for a year. And then the next year, I decided I'd prefer to go to Buffalo because I was interested in linguistics and poetry. Mm-hmm. So in 64. Five, I guess, sixty-four. I went. We went to Buffalo. We stayed there for three years and did a lot. Of, and that was another community of writers. We formed the Institute of Further Studies, and Olson was our primary person there. But Creeley also came up later, and so that became another major event for me. So they were basically literary events Mm -hmm. and the whole notion of moving later on into a different context, more social context, didn't happen until the late 60s. And of course, okay, so you're talking about that
2: earlier period, what would be the big cultural and or literary social events more recently that have shaped your thinking or perhaps your writing or the directions of your work in general,
3: well, this is a little bit in hindsight, though I can still feel the the power of it in the late seventies, and so there's no event, there's just sort of meeting people okay. still and, and you know like meeting Roy Mickey becoming aware of of his concerns when did you meet Roy? Probably in the mid 70s, when he was doing his PhD at, at UBC, at UBC and, and and then through that, and he, he was interested in the same poets. He was working on William Carlos Williams, and so that there was a big overlap there with uh, some, of the, you know, the Tish and the Black Mountain, the Black Mountain, Stone and, and things like that. But Roy, within was also. Involved with the uh, J.C. Redress the, right. uh, Committee, mm-hmm. and also my own my own writing had always had never been able to pay attention to. The racialization that I was that I was involved not involved with but that was around me in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and it wasn't until uh, the late 70s when, say, you know, Joy Kagawa's Obasan was published, 81, yeah, and so all of a sudden the whole the racial discourse became. Available. It wasn't available before then.
2: Yes. There wasn't,
3: yes I, I remember that. There was yes. no, uh,
2: there, there was yeah. ethnicity. Ethnicity, yeah. you know, like, there was gender issues. Yeah. I remember arguing with you about Olson and <laughs> masculinity because <laughs> uh, I learned so much from you when I, I first met you. But yes, yeah, so that's interesting that there was no vocabulary, no language. Yes, we were talking about ethnicity in the 70s. So what So there wouldn't be a single event as such that brought that shift in your consciousness or or writing towards racialization and racism. You do talk about that, of course, in different ways in, you know, Diamond Grill and some other works. And I remember, I forget now the title of it, that beautifully produced journal you brought out after your first visit to China. Oh, Grass,
3: the Sparrows Yes, without
2: your father figure coming across your father, yeah. uh, station. Uh, so that would that be sort of um, a large moment during which you started becoming more aware of those things in terms of, even of how they affected the directions of your writing.
3: I don't. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was a. It was a sort of. It was a large moment for me personally mm-hmm. uh, to be able to address uh, this notion of identity. You know, who's <laughs> why. What's all this about? And, and that was just becoming possible. The la- there was a language that was just starting to become available to me, and I worked at that. And there, but, but there were a number of smaller events. You know, I—I I mean, during the '70s, there was—you know—the feminist push in the '70s. Start, you know, Nicole Brissard, Cocteau's pub. Pap- was publishing Nicole Broussard, Yes. and that was a great influence on me. I just, you know, really, the, trans, the translations of Nicole's work were really important. And, and then Robert Kroesch, who I knew about through Boundary, he was involved with Boundary magazine in American, Boundary, Ma- Two. Boundary 2, an American magazine, and I, don't, I forget when I met Robert, but he was, you know, we were, I was able to talk about Olson with him, because he knew yes. all that, he, had, he knew that background. But he was yeah. also very interested in articulating a kind of different sense of Canadian literature's mm-hmm. Canadian sensibility
2: that I hadn't been... Yeah, because he had been in the U.S. for such a long time, yeah. right? And then I think when uh, he came back to Canada, well, he was here actually literally in Calgary as a writer-in-residence and then in Lethbridge for two years and moved back to Canada for good in 1977, mm-hmm. no, 78. So that was a larger moment with a lot of shifts, gender ethnic discourse. It was also mentioning Nicole, at least the way I remember it, because I I was a graduate student at the time, it was the beginning of the advent of feminist theory, continental theory, as opposed to a more North American approach to to feminism, and there was a lot of resistance to to theory. But the poetics you were dealing with, say, Olson's proprioception and and Jack Spicer's notions, Robin Blazer, all those ideas were more conducive to the theoretical kind of investigations or agitations that were happening at that time that invited us to think about identity and subjectivity in different ways.
3: Yeah, and for, you know, Daphne Marlott was a very important person for me in the 70s, mm-hmm. and, and she edit, uh, She was editing uh, the magazine called, was it Periodics? Uh, periodics. Yeah. yeah and, periodics. And, but we, we we also were very interested in if you quote-unquote <laughs> indigeneity then, I don't, know, I don't think that term was around then, but in, uh, in First Nations, in in the mythology, in, in the mm-hmm. cosmology mm-hmm. of First Nations. Yeah, and and
2: if, like your work, for example, pictograph, uh, pictograms or pictographs, pardon pictograms, Pictograms, right, pictograms yeah. yes. That's a very important key text in, in, in your own trajectory, but also in general, in terms of how it reads,
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know, and acknowledges the presence of indigeneity, and how you kind of make an intervention in bringing it to to the surface, yeah. So how, can you talk a bit more what you started saying earlier about how those concerns or those events or encounters shifted your sense of, of uh, racialized identity?
3: Well, I became aware, as many others did, I think, or maybe not that many others at the time, of the whole notion of the sense of difference, that there was, there were, there was difference. <laughs> Around and uh, how to how to figure that out and uh, so during the 80s and, and talking with particularly people like like Roy Meakey and and meeting some of the young the, the Chinese Canadian writers Jim Wong Chu in mm-hmm. Vancouver and, and so there was an interest in trying to articulate the more Asian sensibility. Mm-hmm. And that was totally new. I hadn't had any of that around in the 60s and 70s and other than, you know, Kenneth Rex Ross translation of the Chinese yeah. or something like that. But the, the sense of developing a kind of Asian, an Asian sensibility through the JC Redress, the Chinese Canadian Writers Workshop and so forth during the 70s. And then I joined the Writers Union, I think sometime in the early to mid 80s and got involved with that as a as an institution if you like around canadian writing and that led of course to major shifts in events
2: yeah the it led, it led, it led events, to some other events yeah.
3: with so found like-minded people like david Daniel, david moses and Lenore marquis who were we formed the racial minority writers committee mm-hmm. and started in getting events going through that because the it was basically because the writers union really felt they wanted to have some writers of color, you know, they just wanted kind of that that representation of themselves out there. But then, of course, ironically, led to this uh, confrontation. Yes, because to have representation, you've got to consider the politics
2: of representation, right? Yeah. Uh, Yes. Rather than uh, proceeding to represent different communities and people through it different acts of tokenism, right? So uh, that was, even from my view, as an outsider to those events, but the participant in various, you know, in, in their various configurations, that was a very important moment for a lot of things and for Canada in general, because it, it launched all kinds of other discussions.
3: Right? Yeah, and it became, uh, it was harder at the time. I mean, there was just people sort of coming out of the woodwork and- coming out of the closet, if you like and mm-hmm. we're discovering that there actually were quite a number of writers of color and uh, difference out the, out there but so that started something in the in the early 90s that moved uh, you know just really picked up and helped along a lot of the uh, the discourse around mm-hmm. racialization, but it also led to you know racialized writers writing about their themselves mm-hmm. working through that the politics of identity and that so there was a you know just 20 years of, <laughs> mm-hmm. of that going on could you talk more specifically about that
2: in terms of your own writing well
3: yeah i've <laughs> i uh, started with breathing my name with a sigh back in the mm-hmm. late 70s trying to address my own chinese taste if you like or you know my, the, what's what's chinese in, in 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 me and uh i'm mostly i'm more swedish than i am chinese but it's the because we grew up with my father was primarily Chinese, and we grew up with chinese food and uh, and I worked in my in a chinese Canadian restaurant for a long time i was very I felt very attached, if you like, to being to having that asian background and i didn't i didn't want to pretend that I was full Chinese and I certainly wasn't an urban Chinese such as the urban writers in Vancouver and that but I've joined them in that, and that became part of finally i you know <laughs> BP Nickel. I was teaching with BP Nickel at Red Deer College in 1988. The year, I remember that the, the year he died, and and during that summer, we BP was always pushing, pushing, and pushing me to try other forms of writing. He would say, you know, you got, if you're going to be a writer, you got to try everything. And of course, BP had tried you know, writing for television, writing songs. And he'd done the three-day novel contest yes. and won. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, look, at least you know, try the three-day novel contest. Why don't you just do it? I hated prose. You know, I didn't want to write prose. but So I did that in, I think, 19, 19, the fall of 1989 or 88. Yeah, it was in the fall of 88. Actually, it was the month. I t- you know what? I remember you because...
2: In the summer of 88, I taught a creative writing course at the same college. Yeah, you remember that. Yeah, and and I remember you reading. At least it was the first time I heard you read from what became Diamond Grill. So it was summer of 19, because I got my first job in 87, and it was the first summer after my first year as tenure track, and you were reading. I remember, yeah, from that manuscript. That was the first time I heard you read. But I hadn't written it yet. But you read something that you presented as as I remember that vividly. Okay, well yes. maybe I had
3: been fiddling around with it. I, <laughs> I don't recall. Yeah. I, I I do know that when I sat down to do that three-day novel contest on Labor Day weekend in the fall of '88, uh, that uh, I ended up with you know 60 or 70 pages of prose, anecdotes, you know, anecdotal yes. writing, you know, a biotext, you know, writing about a family and stuff like that, and I just sort of threw it in the drawer and. If, Started, but then I started reading a few pieces from it that made sense during readings, and then you know, Aretha, Aretha Van Hurt, who mm-hmm. our colleagues here at U of C, said, you know, why don't you show that to me? And she sort of helped me put together mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Uh, a book that became Diamond Grill and has been... It's become a classic. Well, it's, it's, it's still in print.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an incredible book. Because precisely because it reads, you can read it at so many different levels. You have so many, you give the reader so many points of entry. There's the door that you keep, you know, uh, pushing against, kicking at. um, But, uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary text. So that was like a major shift in terms of thematizing more directly your Mm -hmm. sense of, you know, identity difference and racialization. But at the same time, you're also a critical thinker. I mean, your work is often, most of your work is really, very hybrid in some sense. I mean, well, you edited me. <laughs> yes, I edited you. You edited
3: too. faking it. <laughs> faking it, yeah. And if yeah. I hadn't had you as an editor for that, I don't know how we would have come up with such a book. Well, that I, you know, I wasn't writing. I wasn't that fond of writing papers for conferences. Yes, but though. you.
2: I heard you give a couple of talks, various literary events, and nothing. One of them was here at the University of Calgary, and it, it was really wonderful and very much ahead of its time in terms of how we thought at the time critically about language, about form, because quite often, and we saw that in the beginning of this shift towards identity politics in Canada, there was such a a strong emphasis on thematics, thematizing identity, Mm -hmm. and and quite often doing that, which is, of course, important to do, but doing it at the expense of formal or aesthetic or textual concerns. And one thing I've always loved about your writing, and I learned so much from it, is precisely the fact that you apply pressure on both the kind of more conventional ways of thinking about identity and the way you do it, language, form, the method you you adopt. And in faking it, one of the things that you uh, do so wonderfully well is that you keep reinventing or, re, you know, retooling mm-hmm. the way in which you talk about things. You introduce so many different key words or ways of... Well, know.
3: Faking It, I think, was really my my substantive work, if you like. Uh, and a lot of it's, in a sense, still, I treat it in a kind of poetic, po- mm-hmm. tri- po- poetic, critical form, if you like. Yeah, But that was uh, such an important book for me to try to... Uh, with your help, a lot of these things I had been using at you know, conferences—in other words, inserting myself into this critical discourse that had been, was going around about Canadian literature, about the mm-hmm. about the racial, racialized writing and so forth—and that was, uh, boy, that <laughs> that was such a useful exercise for me to kind of, okay, <laughs> this is. This is what I've got to say about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, then it, it really did influence my the rest of my poetry because you get the discourse, you get the words, you get the language and the lexicon that goes on with it, and mm-hmm. it all gets mashed. You know, it's a mash-up. Yes, <laughs> It's it yes. mashed together. Yes, that's right. Yeah.
2: At this point in time, I mean, you talked about community and the various ways in which you moved in and out of communities, made communities happen. Do you think that things are different today in terms of technology and, and, and social media. And I know that uh, you've always been in, you know, in the forefront of technology. You are one of the first people I knew who bought a computer. I remember having dinner with you and others in Winnipeg, and I was completely impressed with your Apple Watch. It was the first time I had seen an Apple Watch. So technology has been something of interest uh, to you. So can you talk a little bit about that? how it has fertilized your work or, or what it means for you and where things are at now in terms of
3: technology and writing? Well, of course, it for my, not just myself, but for many other writers of my generation, it came out of self-publishing, it came out of mimeograph magazines, and how do we get things printed? What how, And so Coach House Press was a, once again a major element in, for a lot mm-hmm. of uh, Canadian, young Canadian writers because Coach House Press computerized... The preparation of manuscripts, and that that shift in the l- late 70s, early 80s, was you know was a really uh, was a kind of major shift. And of course, mm-hmm. the small computers came in. You know the what we called the you know trash 88, and the, <laughs> and the Commodore, and oh, uh, yes, you know, yes, that, and yeah. then finally the Apple came in, and, yeah. and uh, that became part of Frank Davy, and was very involved with this too. And uh, Frank and I uh, ended up being, you know, trying to put together this Swift, what's called Swift Turn. you know, I uh, remember kind that. of the first. We did. We had this first electronic mm-hmm. literary magazine that we knew of in the world, and we were using it to for writers to send poems to one another. Right over the, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no internet mm-hmm. then, but there was this send stuff, send, send stuff, stuff through a data pack or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So that was the basis of that was just self-publishing and Mm -hmm. publishing stuff and of course then it sort of took off uh you know in the early 90s and um it's become now i guess uh a little overwhelming and perhaps too much (laughs) uh the discrimination text is not as i don't think as acute as it uh as it used to be for me anyway uh i'm sure it's It's great for some of the younger writers because publishing is so available. And, uh, and of course, we've tripled the number of books Mm -hmm. that are being published Mm -hmm. each year. Can you talk
2: more about how access to this kind of technology has shaped your relationship with language and textuality and the making of books? Because one of the things that's always been so characteristic of, of your writing that every single book has its own character, its own personality, not only in terms of its contents but in terms of it as, a, as an object that you hold into your hands and for example, your most recent uh, collaboration with Rita Wang, about the River, that is something that surely is made possible in part because of the available technology. Can you talk a little bit
3: about well, that? that was made of it you know that was pretty much totally <laughs> yeah. because of the technology available. We're working on a project with Rita about uh, about the Columbia River. Working on a river that's 2,000 kilometers long, and proposing that we write a poem as long as the river. And we're working with artists and that, and the ability to stretch the the Columbia River, which is very <laughs> a, a, curvy and not not a straight line, but stretching it out in a straight, in a more or less a horizontal straight line, and writing on both sides of the river. Writing and crossing over once in a while, using it as, an, as a kind of image text, if you like, that was made possible by the kind of technology you know doing things on Adobe Illustrator and, uh, and things like that. And so working in that environment was uh, very very freeing you know to be able to play with uh, images that way. Of course, during the 90s, a lot of this was, uh, I, did, uh, quite, I did more collaborations with visual artists in the 90s mm-hmm. precisely because uh, the technology was there to reproduce these things, including video texts and, things, and other, working with painters and, and so forth. Image text, I think, has become much more, uh, is a, a much more attractive thing. And collaboration,
1: mm-hmm. uh, you
3: know, I think, is much yes. looser, much freer because you can collaborate you know a lot of people now when they do interviews, it's just you know email
2: <laughs> yes, but let's talk a bit more about collaboration because collaboration has been a very caring kind of mode uh in in your trajectory as a writer, and it's taken different forms. Do you think that the ethos of collaboration has shifted from the earlier days of of your writing uh when you were you know putting together? put in the school of writing, or writing magazine, or Tish, or Swift Current. Too, what collaboration is about today, or how it you know it's manifested in different ways.
3: Uh, I guess it's because the community. I mean, the community that's available to myself is to a writer is so huge. I mean, there's so many possibilities there. So collaborating with someone like Haruko Hukana on on a, on a project that uh, we both came up came up with uh, about printing on certain kinds of paper or you know and in, in involving trying to articulate hybridity through the project it 's wonderful to work with an artist a visual artist on that once again it 's community I'm working with Henry Chang on a video on the neighborhood mm-hmm. <laughs> you know for a Paul street festival yeah, just being able to work with different people on this. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, all, I realized that collaboration I really wasn't involved in collaboration until the 90s and mm-hmm. it seemed to be possible mostly because of the kind of public publishing that was available mm-hmm. uh, that it was that it was possible to do a collaboration and then publish it in its particular in a particular way
2: so what what uh, if we want to try and push this a little further it's facilitated by the technology and the publishing venues available but what difference does collaboration make in terms of what you want to get out there or what kind of a network of relations or web of relations does it help you create and has that been you know what's the importance of that in, in your
3: life and in your writing? Well I have a lot more to do with visual artists mm. now and I'm much more interested in, in the, I've always been interested in image text as, a, as an event in language and in, in, in composing but now it's much more possible to have a dialogue uh, with uh, visual artists about the possibilities of collaboration, possibilities of a project. Working with, you know, Rita and I working with visual artists to, pr- to produce this project um, called Beholden was uh, truly <laughs> collaborate, collaboration outside of writing. I mean, it was just... You know, Oh yes, we can do that. Or yes, we can do this.
2: So, can you give uh, like a, a specific example? Do you have an idea, and then you approach the visual artist, or is it through your interaction with someone like Henry Chan, for example, talking about this or that, you, you meet to attend an event, and then things happen, or is, is is this how a project comes about that's collaborative,
3: or just give me an example <laughs> of that process? I think the actual projects, as I. Most of the time, anyway. not all the time, but most of the projects are sort of after the fact of the collaboration. And the one with Henry Chung, for example, um, it, it's had to do with the Paul, Paul Street Festival commissioned Henry and I to do a, a collaboration for their a section of their festival called Spatial Poetics. They gave us a year, yeah. so, so the, we want you to produce this by next July. So Henry was teaching at Emily Carr in Vancouver we would just start meeting and having coffee and having lunch together and talking and knowing that we've got, you know, we've got to come mm. up with some idea for this collaboration. We did this all year and we had great conversations and just meeting and talking and yeah, just two months before this thing was doing, <laughs> oh, we've got to do something for You've this. we have got a deadline. Yeah. you know What should we do? <laughs> you know? So we just came up with this idea of, you know, doing something on the whole notion of neighborhood <laughs> and, uh, That, but sort of at the end of. uh, So, what form did your uh, neighborhood project take? Oh, Henry did. uh, He had been doing videos on towns and cities, and, and and I and I was interested in the whole notion that urban social architecture. At least at that time, mm-hmm. ten or fifteen years ago, was being described in the terms of the neighborhood. You know, these, the, the the city is broken into neighborhoods of particular relationships, mm-hmm. and there are you know there's this ethnic neighborhood of Chinese, Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's this, this dot com neighborhood of mm-hmm. young know, computer geeks and so forth. And these are different constituencies, constituencies, and I try to challenge that. I wrote a piece called "Pop Goes the Hood" and yes. kind of tried to challenge that wrote a long poem that then henry was inserted sort of between Hen- henry's videos of, mm-hmm. the, of the of the city mm-hmm. so yeah it's you know yeah, so it's incremental cumulative and uh, yes yeah and anything yeah. i think any project that is generative that is that generates other newer mm-hmm. things is a that's what that's what i'm interested in
2: mm-hmm. well we we talked or you talked uh quite a bit about the earlier days of, of your writing and the different communities you were involved with. One of the of the reasons we're here today is because of this council of elders, right? So that makes you aware of of age, age aging your body. And the body has been very important in your work in in different ways and for different reasons. Can you talk a little bit about how your writing practice changed
3: along with changes that you experienced in your own body? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's a difficult one to figure out, I guess. Um, I've always wanted a kind of practice of composition that has I used to call it proprioception, but the, the sense of something that comes from within, the sensation that comes from within, and that's still there for me. It's still very much part of how I, how I see jazz, performing jazz as as part of I compose. As I get older and the body starts to uh, slow down and and deteriorate, I'm particularly interested, concerned now about uh, my mother's passing with dementia and experiencing her in that, and I'm concerned about how the mind deteriorates, how Language starts to get not, well, doesn't start to get polluted, it gets it disappears. <laughs> frankly. <laughs> so, this, this sense of uh, uh, languagelessness, kind of in the sense that basically, you know, in the sense that Robin Blazer talked about, languagelessness, that we start to lose mm-hmm. our, our frame that where language will fit. So, just basically losing words, but also not being able to uh, think as quickly around language is, is a struggle. I'm, I'm, at the same time, I'm curious about. What that is for us. Are you writing about it at all? How are you engaging with that in, in your practice? I write about it a bit, and mm-hmm. I kind of feel around for it. And look, I look for things that are attached to that. And, and you know, for example, I was talking yesterday about the whole notion of home mm-hmm. and uh, what, what home is, and how so home becomes. a kind of as this one critic said, this is a kind of incitedness to home that we all carry. Even though people become demented, they still carry this mm-hmm. inside of this of home. So it expands into a kind of other uh, paradigms of thinking, not just you know kind of a scientific or medical context of mm-hmm. dementia, but maybe there's something there that I can shape, get involved with shaping mm-hmm. more for myself. Yeah, it's open. It's open, but yeah. uh, the body is certainly.
2: <laughs> wax,
3: kind of wax you over the head.
2: Um, we we talked about the 60s when you first came into the scene and you made things happen for yourself and the community at large. This is, uh, we've already... You know, way into the so-called New Millennium. What is your sense of where CanLit is at today? What's your sense of how the field, not necessarily as a discipline or as an institution, just as a community of different voices and you know, literary cultural practices, where is that now? What is your sense of it? What?
3: It's become uh, very disparate for me. I, I, don't, I don't really have a sense of quote-unquote CanLit anymore. I mean, I come come into it with these dregs from this, you know, the '70s and '80s and and all that. But I don't feel that it's part of my mm. my view of of activity now. I mean, I I recognize that CanLit academically still goes on, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't it's hard to fo- it's hard to follow. Um, I the community around CanLit has dispersed for me, mo- partly because I'm no longer institutionalized that way. But I, I think it has dispersed. I've Talk, you know, talking to people who teach can lit, and the students aren't there for, for a lot of them, and and how to how to shape or how to frame how to articulate that sense of a of a national literature, I think has been sort of appropriated by the media, by the you know like CBC, the contest, the whole notion mm-hmm. of uh, the whole culture of celebrity, yeah, thing, yes. yeah, yeah, and it's, it's it's something else, and I'm not, I'm frankly, not that interested in it I mean it does you know there are still people involved and I you know, meet some of them and know them and, and that's nice but
2: so you're saying then if I understand you correctly that there is this thing that we call for better or worse can and that's become too diverse and you don't feel that connected with it and then there there is you know I mean you are still part of Canlit, right you're an author still publishing and kicking very much in the foreground for kinds of good reasons so you're talking about can than as an academic field as reported, that you, you know, it's changed
3: and it's... Well, it used to be, when I was younger, Hamlet was exciting because there were all these new writers. And it was being, the sense of it was sort of being shaped by, the, by mm-hmm. a lot of these mm-hmm. writers who I met, like, you know, Robert Kroosch, and Mernie Susan Crean, and so forth. But, so these were people. I was, there was Once again, it was community. Yes. It was people. And now it's more, it's not, no longer generate it no longer generates for me a more in, any more interesting community. <laughs> mm. There are still good people around. I'm not knocking that, but I don't think of talk when I talk to a young writer. I don't think of talking to them in terms of can live.
2: The first day of our gathering here, you you talked and read uh, from a piece about kicking, of course, alluding to a very powerful image of, of the door and diamond Grail*, And you talked about, you know, you still want to, you know, what's kicking for you right now? Let's finish on that note.
3: I don't know that it makes, you know, anything makes me kick. I, I mean, I want to, I want to have that sensation of uh, the whap, bam, boom, oh, that moment. So I look for, I look for moments in, in, in writing, in art, in, in sensibility that jolt. So I'm always interested in trying to discover not so much the new, but the surprise, this thing, the thing that's behind the thing, behind the thing. Mm-hmm. We were doing, uh, my wife, Pauline, was going, she went to a book group the other night in Vancouver. I was here, and it was a, it was a poetry reading group with uh, uh, Jean Baird set it up with George Bauer and They had decided to use this poem by Margaret Avison called The Hid. Margaret Evanson's always been a favorite poet of mine. But here's this poem and I think she probably wrote it in the in you know in the nineteen nineties or you know quite a quite a while ago, quite be, quite a while before she died. And it's a poem that is very straight in a sense, but she's so good at getting behind the poem. Mm-hmm. When you read this poem and it's very much like a Williams poem where you Oh, I didn't know I'd be there when I ended it. it, it wasn't predictable at all. You know, and a a lot of poetry is mm-hmm. you know, Ominously predictable, but this. So I'm looking for that kind of opening into language and poetry mm-hmm. that is, uh, as Robin Blazer would say, an astonishment. Yes. You know, and and that was also a favorite word of Roy Kiyoka astonished. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. And, uh, you know, like, Phyllis Webb is, is another writer who, for me, has been very useful or interested to me because she—that's what she was. Look, she kept looking for, mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. you know, poems like *Leaning* are just like to me, just treasures of of poetic discovery. Um, and so the kick is the is simply—I shouldn't say simply, but it's finding what's not. It's what maybe emergence
2: when you become aware of another very important and favorite concept of yours via kids' negative capability. That's something that cannot be subsumed, consumed, that's there, and, and it, it gives you that jolt that makes you see or think otherwise. Yeah, I
3: haven't changed much in that regard. I just you know, I keep looking for uh, things that uh, aren't appropriated by the world of logic and, and uh, making sense. <laughs> well, I have no doubt you will
2: continue to jolt us and to kick. Thank you so much for it, will. Well, thank you, Samaro.
1: We hope you enjoyed this interview of Fridwa by Smaro Camborelli. I am Mahmoud Ababneh, and you are listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed as well as the guidance of Marcus Tuchel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jilin, Paul Monnier, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tia House Talks. For more on the work of Tia House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at tia. Houseyyc@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.